I'm Nareet Ben. Welcome to Life Deconstructed. Miri Eisen was born in California, raised in Israel, and spent 20 years in the military, serving as deputy head of the Combat Intelligence Corps and retiring as a full colonel. In each position along the way, she was the only woman in the room and the very first woman to do her job. In the years since, she also became the first woman in the country's history to serve as foreign media advisor to the prime minister and has played a key role in explaining the complicated Middle East to the world. I caught up with her in Tel Aviv to reflect on why she loved working in intelligence, the biggest mistake she ever made, and how her definition of success has changed dramatically. Mary, I'm so glad to have you on. And after hours on end with you doing breaking news in a TV studio, talking geopolitics and conflict, it's so nice to finally get to talk on a more personal level. It is about time, and it's about time to not be focused on geopolitics. Right. So a nice break. Well, let's focus for one second on what we've all been living through, because your life is normally super busy, a lot of travel, a lot of groups, interaction with big groups of people. How has this pandemic, living under a pandemic, been for you and your family? I feel very fortunate. I think that for a lot of people, it really has thrown their life out the window. For me, what the pandemic did is it said, you have to stop. And I would never have stopped otherwise. And I stopped. And I suddenly discovered that I like having time. I like owning my time. I like picking and choosing what I'm going to do. I like spending time at home and reading. I like doing things in depth. Now, everything I'm saying right now, you know, we can nod and say, of course, but that's not the life that we live. We're always running after what we're doing. We never have enough time. And I'm not going to go back to where I was before. But that's a prerogative. That's a, I mean, for me, that's like one of the blessings that I have. Yeah, I I think that's absolutely for those of us, as you said, that are fortunate enough to be able to, you know, not worry about job and food security and and those immediate things, which so many people were affected by is the permission. I think we never have permission in our society and our lifestyles, kind of no matter where you live to really slow down and to take time off to say no to things, to spend time at home, family time, all these things. And in a way, it gave everybody some for the first time in many, many years permission to just to stop and do things they hadn't focused on in so long, which is a great time to reevaluate your life. And it's also a big part of kind of why I wanted to have these conversations is I think that, you know, there are some people like myself even who are kind of always thinking about what is my path and, you know, where should I be and all kinds of stuff like that. But I think this situation forced people to stop and reevaluate either by force or by choice, really, where their lives are going and what kind of lifestyle and do they love what they do and you know, all of that. So anyway, let me go back then to figure out how you got to to where you are, but way back. So you have a very different life experience than a lot of people in that at 17, 18, instead of deciding what you want to major in and sort of choosing your very initial life path, you began the army. I wonder if you remember yourself at that age and sort of what you were interested in or what kind of direction you thought your life might take if, if you had any idea. When you are 17 in Israel, by 10th, 11th grade, you already know that you're going to be drafted at the end of high school. So in its own way, it's similar with all of the differences to applying to the college. You try to find out where you are possibly going to be serving. What are the best positions that are out there? Because it's for a long time. It's for two full years. 
So in that sense, it was like I knew that I was going to be going into the military, and I knew that what I wanted to do was to be a commander. You know, it's like when you know nothing, but you go, but I want to command other people. Like, that's the real important part. And the military said, thank you very much. You know English, you know French. Remember, this is, you know, almost 40 years ago. So take those capabilities that 40 years ago were much more unique than they are today. We need you for your languages. Added in another one, a little bit of Arabic along the way. And I found myself in military intelligence 40 years ago, where you are starting to understand that there's a whole world that you never knew of before. And I kind of stepped in. It's not a question of, and I fell in love and I stayed forever and ever. But I discovered that the military in this case had put me in a place where I thrived, where I grew, where I suddenly found all sorts of things I didn't know about myself and that I could bring out, helping both interesting for myself and certainly with an interesting career. So in this case, actually not getting what you wanted, your initial idea of what it was to be the military and what you wanted to be turned out to be a blessing in disguise. And and it sounds like sort of helped you figure out who you are in, in terms of what your strengths are. Well, it takes a lot longer than that. When you're 18, 19, 20, I have... Oh, yeah, sure. It's not It's not overnight. I have a 21-year-old at home. I have a 19-year-old at home and a 16-year-old. The 21 and 19-year-old now are both soldiers in their compulsory career. And it's fascinating to watch them, you know, 40 years later going through something that I went through. And first of all, it's very different from when I went through it. I have a son, a daughter, what they're doing. I'm not sure that I can tell you that from the start I said what I want to do is a career in the military, let alone in intelligence. But what I found is that I could do way more than what I thought of. I always knew that I had a speaking capability. I always knew that I could talk to a crowd. But there's a big difference between that and being able to understand information, put it together and present it to commanders, to officers. And I found that I I like doing that and I can do that. What a great experience, actually, to to have a structure around you. And obviously, not everybody has this, you know, even those in the military, some have a very different experience, but to have this structure around you that helps show you your potential in a way and, and a sort of outside voice that says, hey, you're really good at this. Why don't you give it a try? Because so many people, you know, at that age are trying, you know, doing some major that just seems, you know, okay, this is interesting enough, unless, of course, you know, except for the pre-med crowd. Um, And that actually ends up really setting people on a path to, you know, on their life path, even if, you know, who knows what the hell they want to do at age 17. But at what point then normally, so as a woman, you serve two years or so, get released, maybe do a trip around the world, do some backpacking and then start studying and all of that. So how did you end up actually deciding that this was the place for you and where you wanted to grow and, and eventually build a life and a career? So remember, there's that stage where you got to do your life choice and go into college. Yeah. So in Israel, that's after your compulsory military service. And I did, I actually did two and a half years because I did officer's course. And I got out and I did a little bit of a trip and I came back and I went into university. And Norita, I knew what I was going to do. I'd been in military intelligence. I loved what I was doing. I was going to be a diplomat. And I went into university and I was going to study international relations and Middle Eastern history. And right, I'm going to be that ambassador that they have to appoint now for UAE, but not. And I studied it. And as I continued in my studies and I looked more and more at what they do in the diplomatic world, I said, oh, 
what I was doing in military intelligence, that's what I like to do. I like to be much more of a practitioner, much more of somebody who's on hands. And it's not a question of less talking because I am good at talking, but it is doing something which is much more policy oriented, very hardcore realpolitik. And I'm all for diplomacy. I just said that that was not where I wanted to be. And I turned around and went back into the military. I think that happens to so many people in that and and not, you know, I think you were fortunate to have that happen in your 20s. Uh, some people realize that in their 40s, 50s or, or later, but, you know, we have an idea of a job or a title or something that has a sort of aura around it that just sounds good or sounds interesting. But so often that, you know, there's a big gap between what something sounds like and what it actually is or what people tell us we should like and, and what it actually is. I'm curious, I mean, you, you talked about it a little bit, but what did you like so much about military intelligence? I mean, what made you excited to be to be part of that? So in Israel, it's really clear who your enemy is. And what I just said right now is so not a given. It isn't always clear who your enemies are. And I think that that clarity makes it in its own way much more challenging you're up against. It can be countries and their militaries. It can be terrorist groups that are around you but you're looking at them and you want to find out the information, you want to understand the information, you want to preempt, you want to make sure they don't do bad things to you before. It's something where you feel that you're doing something important. You really understand what you're doing. And I love solving the mystery. Um, it probably goes hand in hand with the fact that I am totally addicted to the New York Times crossword puzzle. <laughs> there was hints. There's always a hint somewhere for you. It's the crossword puzzle. Oh my God. But for, cause you know, the way that the crossword puzzle is built is that it's Mondays through Sundays where it gradually gets harder. Right. And you know, by Thursday, it's already up a tough hill. Thursday is for the hardcore people. And so in its own way, it's looking at something where you hope you have the picture correctly and then you're filling in the blanks in military intelligence. You're not even sure that you have the correct picture. You both have to draw the picture and fill in the blanks and hope that you're not wrong um, and constantly second guess yourself. There's an enormous openness to, to openness, to having other opinions, to thinking outside the box. And I like that. So of all of the things that happened, I think that what it brought together was a willingness to be very different and to think differently and to be able to express that. And at the same time, you're still doing something so real politique, so connected to real threats that you really do feel that you're actually doing something. Yeah, you're actually, you're really having an impact. That's interesting. I don't, I think that would surprise a lot of people to hear what you're saying about, you know, this openness to other opinions and thinking out of the box, because a lot of times the notion of any kind of military structure is just, you know, follow the rules. There's a hierarchy, you know, you stick within the box in a way. How was it for you, I mean, both as initially as a relatively younger uh, member of the military, because as you said, you were, you know, spent a really long time, but also as a woman, did you feel ever in terms of, you know, what you were talking about being heard, coming up with things that are out of the box, maybe speaking up in times when other people, you know, what was that like for you? So there's certainly two different aspects. One is being the only woman my entire career. Nurit, I never had other women in the room with me. Wow. Now I took it as a given. I took it as a yeah, given. Let's, let's pause there. For how long is that, that you're the only woman in the room? Pretty much from the age of 20 when I became an officer until I finished as a full colonel when I was already 40-something. Wow. All of the years in the military and all of the positions that I was in, there were other women around, but 
we were so few that you'd like meet up here and there. Um, all the positions I did, they didn't have other women at the brigade level. They had them as, as you know, clerks, as low level, but not in the professional as aspects that I was in. And I was always going to be in every, let's put it this way, when it was a conversation, let alone when it was decision and policy making, I was the only woman's voice that was going to be heard as a woman. So there's an aspect there, which is very... It's a lot of responsibility too. It is. And you're very aware of the fact that you're the first woman. Um, well, I was very aware of that because every single position I did in the military, it was the first time that a woman had done that position and in all of the positions that I did. And so it becomes this kind of onus on your back that you're not just doing it because you're interested and because you're good at it, but everybody's looking at it as, ah, oh, let's see if a woman can do it. It's a just an additional little added, <laughs> you know, because it isn't hard enough as is. But I think that what I found is that I'd walk in and the language changed. So when you say about that openness, I can give different examples to all sides of it. The men who were like, oh, we can't talk the way we're used to talking. And not because men inside a room automatically talk, you know, disgustingly dirty or anything like that. It's just they do talk differently. There's a, there's a macho kind of talk that comes out when it's only men in the room that doesn't happen as soon as one woman is in the room. So, so that you could see the men inside the room, that it meant that they, that they felt the difference and it like stopped them. Um, the other aspect of it was out of an aspect of respect. I mean, here I am and in one of the positions, um, I was pregnant with my the eldest child, he who is now 21. And my commanding officer at the time stopped smoking because I was pregnant because wow. I was in these rooms. And this is before it was when smoking was still legal and whatever, you know, this is a long time ago. It was a thing for everyone to smoke in a closed room. Though. Exactly. And he said, well, I'm going to stop smoking because she's pregnant and that's bad for her, which meant that all of the officers in the room had to stop smoking inside that room. And, and that just goes to show, you know, there are different ways that people address that because until then, if you didn't have a woman who's pregnant, then you don't have that kind of a challenge in the room. Um, I feel that those are different. I mean, it's not just being the only woman in the room, but a woman in the height of the most, you know, feminine time of your life. And, you know, in pregnancy, it only highlights that. I kind of, it makes me think of this behavior that we hear about sometimes, which is that, and it's it might be completely outdated, but I think it depends on the industry ultimately, is that especially in masculinized environment, that some women feel that they have to sort of masculinize or actually change themselves. You were talking about the men changing their behavior in a way. Did you ever feel like you had to change your behavior, your language, your body language, whatever it might be to sort of assume your place to be heard like you wanted to be? There is certainly an aspect that when you want to be part of a crowd, and in this case, it's a crowd of men, but this is true when you want to be part of a group, then you can, I tried to, to a certain degree, adapt to the group. But that doesn't mean, I mean, in that sense, I've always had short hair. And I know lots of women in the military that aren't, you know, they want to have long flowing hair, but they're not allowed to have it out and flowing. It has to be tied up. So I'm not G.I. Jane. I didn't shave my head. Um, having said that, I always had very short hair because I didn't want that to be an issue, that I'm going to be the one with the ponytail that all of them don't have. Um, but I was never a woman who, like, put um, fingernail polish on or nail, you know, it's like, I wasn't that one, but I was, I mean, I never tried to make my voice sound 
harsher. Yeah. Um, and I always was the one who would, I'm very quiet and very dominant. And that's one of the aspects that I've always managed to do. I want to say something, I will say it, but I'm not going to, you know, make my voice stronger or louder. Um, and I, I see women who do that, but just like, you know, everybody tries to find their place. We all try to adapt. How do you think it might've helped you to be in that environment? Not just for like a year in one position. I mean, it's extraordinary to be for 20 years in the position of being, as you said, the only woman in the room, the first woman in each position. Do you think in retrospect, it helped you sort of hone certain skills that you wouldn't have otherwise, had you not been in those rooms and that sort of dynamic? That's what I love about you, Nureed, is that you asked me the question that nobody ever asked me before, and I have to think about this one. Um, think, think away. <laughs> um, I think that when you have to be in a position, that it's not just about how good am I at it, but I'm also being perceived as the first woman. And it's that sense that you have an additional weight on your so shoulders that if you fail, it isn't just Mary failing, it's women failing. That's always been there as an added aspect. Um, there are several positions that I did years ago. I mean, one position that I adored that I did 20 years ago, that same one that I was pregnant and he stopped smoking. And no woman, woman has done that position since. And to me, that's like the worst type of reality where I did it and I did it well. And not a single woman has wanted to do it since. What does that mean about it? What does it mean about me at the time? How did I manage to do that for two years, including giving birth to my eldest child? Um, and what does that mean about what is it the deterrence because of um, it's too hard for women, it's too hard for mothers, they don't want to be in that room. I mean, to me, that's really challenging. But there's a whole different aspect that I think is more important today. And that's I want to impact our spouses. Um, I want to be in the situation where our spouses understand that just like you want to be home with your kids that you have not to meet them every once in a while. And that it's not something which is about women and motherhood. It's about parents and parenthood. And it doesn't matter which right, the family unit. And so, and that one I can say that in all places, the IDF has actually changed a lot and very aware of the challenges um, for the spouses and for people inside the room. And they're much more aware of the need to not be 24 seven, 365 in the sense of that, um, you know, that, that deters so many women from stepping into the room in the first place. Well, so since you bring it up, I mean, that's another thing that really interests me is once you begin start having kids, because obviously we're all sort of sold this marketing speak that you can have it all. Uh, maybe, but probably not at the same time. It obviously changes, you know, shifts your life dramatically, maybe more than any other single thing uh, to have kids. You were saying you, you were in this high pressure role when you had your first son. Did it change your path? Did it change the way, you know, you saw your direction in any way or your even your vision of work-life balance, so to speak, or success itself? Child number one did not make the change. Child number two started a big change. Child number three changed. And I say, I think that every single woman has that challenge. It's totally personal. Everybody looks at it in a different way. I started having kids laid on when I was already far off in my career. And other women have kids very early on. And then their kids are older, and then their career takes off. So there's very different ways of looking at the balance. Because I had my kids when I was older, 
I felt that I didn't have kids, and again, that's each one to their own, to never see them and to never be there when they're at their different stages. And in that sense, the child that I know the most intimately is number three. Because by that stage, I was like, well, number one, he's the one that I saw every once in a while. Number two, she's, I mean, she's a sunshine, but I don't remember, I don't have memories of her as a baby. And then there was number three. <laughs> Him I knew as a baby. Wow. I, I want to come back, I think, afterwards a little bit, because I know you, I, th I think anyway, that you made some decisions that also were sort of shifting your focus on career versus family. But let's rewind a bit, because after you exit this long, incredible military career where you, again, set all these new standards and, and break all these glass ceilings, for lack of a better cliche to use, because it's true, you're also the first woman in Israel's history to serve as foreign media advisor to an Israeli prime minister. How, how did you end up there? It's all about children, right? So I have a capability to talk. And when I was already in the military as a full colonel, um, I'm the only full colonel in Israeli history, and for that matter, in any country's history, from military intelligence who stood in front of a camera in uniform, seeing her face. I'll remind you, I was in military intelligence. Yeah, you're not you, normally the people you out front. No, you're, you're not supposed to be recognized on the street and go, hi, Mary. Um, that was a fascinating time period during the Second Intifada in Israel where the chief of staff himself came and said, listen, we need you to do this because it was a vast change and shift in my career. Um, and I discovered that I'm very good at it. In this case, Norit, it's very odd because I am very good at it, but it's not something that I like to do. Really? Again, my passion is in different places. I'm, I'm very good at it. But, um, and so I did it for the military, not as the Israeli military spokesperson, but as a special one during the Second Intifada, only to the foreign press, only in English. And then I retired with child number three. And when Gilad Shalit was kidnapped in June 2006, and then a few weeks later, Goldwasser and Regev were kidnapped up north in 2006. Um, they called me up from the foreign ministry and said, listen, you were really good. People who don't know, these are sort of watershed moments in Israeli society and history. This was a real... Yeah, these are moments that's right before the Second Lebanon War. The second kidnapping is the instigator of the Second Lebanon War. And they called me up from the foreign ministry immediately after both of these events and said, listen, you're really good at talking. We need somebody to talk. And can you come and, and help us out? And only me, you know, at that stage, I think Badavi, my God, what was he at that stage? He was like two, okay? He was, <laughs> I knew him as a baby. <laughs> and then I started to do it, and the prime minister saw what I was doing. I was doing it for the foreign ministry. And he asked me to come to the office, and he personally asked me to take the position of the foreign, of the foreign press um, advisor. And Marit, I said no. Yeah, you said no? <laughs> I said no. Because because of the commitment, because of the actual job itself of of speaking out front, because you were saying that you're good at it, but that doesn't mean you love it. And and by the way, just a side note, that's something that comes up in a lot of conversations that I think is important is that we often equate, well, if I'm good at something, this must be what I meant to do. But that is not at all the case. You can be good at a million things. It doesn't mean that that is your purpose, that that is you know, the place you should be. Absolutely. So, I mean, nowadays I would call myself much more of an educator. So the portion that I would like out of the foreign press 
um, of the foreign media advisor, you know, like educator and politics and educator, <laughs> you know, in-depth background, that can be something that I may like to do. You don't do that a lot as a foreign press advisor. Yeah, you speak in sound. Yeah, 24-7, 365, deadlines, people who want answers, they want them now. They want a, um, They always want a line also, you know, they want that line that they're going to be able to put out. And when I said no, it was the combination of, you know, thank you very much. I'm really impressed that you asked me, but that's not where I am right now. And funny, but it's children, because I brought with me to the prime minister that day, I brought with me the eldest kid, the one who's 21 now, it's all his fault, right? And the prime minister wooed him also. <laughs> he was seven. He knew how to do it. He knew how to do it. And then the prime minister kind of said to the seven-year-old, he said, do you want your mom to work for the prime minister? And like the seven-year-old is like, yeah, I want my mom to work for the prime minister. That wasn't why I did it. I did it because at the end, I am very much an Israeli public servant. I served in the military for 20 years. Um, I served the government. I served for the country. And when the prime minister of the state of Israel says, I need you, not anybody else, then it was very hard for me to say no, because he, there was a whole process and they told me up front, you know, he's going to ask you to do this position today. I was like, tell them, tell them that I'm going to say no. So he came prepared. <laughs> I want to stop for a second on the first no, though, because even though he convinced you and I can now understand why, the first time you say no, I mean, do you have a sense of if you had not had kids at that point, if that wasn't a factor, if you would have had the guts to say no thanks, if, if your decision might have been different? So to me, it's the same question that I have today, because nowadays my kids are, are old, okay, 21, 19, 16, I can do whatever I want to read. It's a totally different stage in my life. And I see that I still don't want to go back into those kind of positions, meaning the fact that I know how to talk and the fact that I know how to respond I do not want to be in that position nowadays of being the official person who gives the official, you know, 20 second sound bite at the most five minute interview. That's not what I want to do. Yes, I know how to do it well. There are lots of people who want to do it and they do it fine. What I want to do where I find that I can give an impact is in longer in-depth conversations in impacting people by talking to them an hour or two or even three and not on the fact that I know how to do 20 second sound bites that that's my own personal decision but because it's out there it's always that question do I want to try and go back there I mean there's nobody really in the position right now and it isn't about this prime minister or that it's serving the state of Israel and I know how to do that but I don't want to be not on the stress not in the hours I don't want to be the person that everybody throws the darts at. Um, at the end, I do not have thick skin. I do take it personally. I could do it. I can still. I do it wholeheartedly. It comes out of one of the reasons I'm so good at it is because I'm very passionate about the subject. And I talk from my heart. And you know it well. Yeah. But every single day, even today, when I do um, any type of response, and I'm not an official, and I'm allowed to say whatever I want, I still feel that weight of talking about a subject, of looking at something, it's saying it, being so specific, and I just don't want to be there again. I have to say, though, I'm impressed, and I don't think it is a given, maybe at your stage after having gone through all these different steps in your career, but to have the sort of sense of self and ability to draw borders around 
what you want to do and what you don't. Um, I think a lot of times we are almost in the same way of, of the permission I was talking about uh, when we first started talking to the permission to do nothing uh, during a pandemic, to suddenly not book your social calendar, this permission to say no to something that might be a promotion or very public or sound great or, you know, come in all of that packaging. I, is that something you always had or, or was that a process for you to get to the place where you could say, listen, this is who I am. This is what I will do. This is what I won't do. It's most definitely a process. I most definitely was not always like that. And it comes from making mistakes along the way. That doesn't mean I won't make more mistakes in the future. But specifically for me, the biggest mistake that I made was when I was promoted to full colonel. They offered me a position that I wasn't very interested in. I certainly wasn't passionate about, but it was promotion. I got full colonel. I got full colonel when I was ridiculously young, even for men. Um, I was already a mother of one. Within a year, I was a mother of two. I was, you know, the exception. I was the, the star. And that was the biggest mistake I ever made because I wasn't passionate about the position. I didn't like the people I was working with. And for me, for two years, that was like the hardest time I had, whereas I'm always so good at things, but I'm good at things because I go into things that I'm passionate about. So even though I don't like being the spokesperson, I am passionate about the state of Israel and about presenting it. So I could get past that during the two years in the prime minister's office. But for example, that first position that I did as a full colonel in the military, I say from my point of view, I did not do that position well. And to this day, it's like, you have to get past that. But I've learned that lesson. The fact that it's promotion doesn't mean that you have to do it. Since, I mean, you're there already with lessons learned, obviously hindsight is twenty twenty, and we all have to just go through the motions and learn, you know, learn our own way and, and our own decisions, our own so-called mistakes. But what would you tell your 20 or 25-year-old self now, sort of in general, if, if you were to sit down with her, do you think? Or maybe what do you tell your, your kids now that you wish you had known at their age? So the first is that the environment that you are working in, and it doesn't matter if it's compulsory military or afterwards, when you get into the workforce, is something that you're allowed to choose. Oh my God, what a concept. <laughs> Instead of it chooses you and it controls you. Not just that, but that, you know, like you're passionate about something and you really want to work in a place, but you can't stand any of the people, you are going to be miserable. I do not know anybody, even if they adore the the what they're supposed to be doing, who is happy when they're in an environment that they don't like the people, that they don't like the way that they treat people. All of those different things are the ones that make you with a smile at the end of the day. And that's a, a huge thing to be able to say to people. It's great for advice. Doesn't always work. Second thing that I think that I learned more over the years is that we actually create an environment much more than we're aware of. And perhaps that goes back to that question that you asked before of walking into a room and, and did you change it? Did it change you? It does both. So you can change it a bit and it can change you a bit, but you want to be in a place where you are comfortable. If during the hours that you are working, you're not comfortable, don't stay in the job. I don't think it's worth it. I think that's so important because as you say, it's easier said than done because again, going back to this the title and the the public image around a job. I think most of the time when we decide what job to accept, what job to seek out and what job to stay in, it has so much to do with the work itself, specifically the title, you know, the stuff around it. But 
like you're saying, it's the culture. And that's obviously something that's, you know, the awareness around work, work culture has grown so much recently. But on an individual level, I don't think that's something we're used to doing to say culture, actually, our environment is enough to determine if we should be somewhere or not, because it can feel like, oh, well, you should just, you know, that's that's the price you got to pay to be in the good job. Well, nowadays, I think, I mean, at least as an outsider and as somebody much older, in its own way, there are more opportunities today. Because nowadays, it's allowed, I don't know if that's the right word, but it's allowed to move jobs frequently. Okay, in my age group, people went to a place and they would work and slowly work their way up. And you literally could work your entire life at the same place. Yeah. And I look at today's 20-year-olds, and there's no problem whatsoever to go to one job and say, no, I don't want to be here for longer than a year. And then you go to another job. And I think that one of the things is that there's the fulfillment of your professional aspect. Um, what I'm talking, I think, resonates more in an Israeli audience, because, especially those who have done the military, because you learn there how important the social aspect is, how much that actually adds to your success in a position. I mean, even in the prime minister's office, where I was the spokesperson, right? That's just me. But the, it isn't like that. It's all of the people I'm working with. It's all of the journalists that I was working with. It's the people inside the office. It can be the prime minister himself or all the different ministers. And if they're all jerks, then you're not, it doesn't matter that you know how to do the other job. And then you try and find the ones that you like to work with more. And you're going to, I mean, that's one of the ways that you find your way around even if you have to work with the jerks, but at least you can try and make it easier for yourself. Yeah, there probably will always be jerks, but I think especially for any, you know, employers or business owners or entrepreneurs listening, such a reminder that the environment you create for the people working for you has so much to do with how, what kind of work comes out of it, what kind of productivity. I mean, you know, none of this is new these days, you know, the study of happiness at work is such a big thing. And, you know, now we're living through a complete revolution in the way work is done and no one really knows how, how the dust is going to settle and if we're all just going to end up on Zoom for the rest of our lives. But, uh, but that is so, so important. Before I, I let you go, I'm curious sort of if you're to zoom out, out from the place you're in now, I think our, our definition of success might change a lot throughout our lives, maybe from initially something that's a sort of outside concept of what we're taught, that success looks like X, Y, Z, to what you actually find out, I think probably only with time and experience. So I wonder what does success actually mean to you at this point? I mean, do you feel like it changed, you know, your notion of what that is has changed dramatically or, or not, maybe? It's a great question. I definitely think that my notion of success has changed. And it's both maturity in life of where you are. Um, and it's a lot of hindsight. I always felt that I was going to be at the top of a pyramid. Meaning when I go into an environment, I'm going to go in and I was going to be the first woman general and I wasn't. And when I go into a place, you know, it's always that sort of sense of when you put for yourself like a target and you don't get there, I think that what I've learned is that you can succeed without that sense that you didn't arrive at where you expected to be. And for me, success today is in that wandering motion that I can flow and feel comfortable with all of the different things that I'm doing. I am, and this isn't about my personal happiness. To me, it's about every person finding their tipping balance where they're doing what they want to do 
and they don't feel that you're missing out. And to me, that's that definition of what you said before of having it all. Because having it all doesn't mean I am a general and I have a partnership and I have a spouse and I have children and I'm home when they need them and they're not home when they're not needing them. No, it's finding that tipping point where sometimes I'm a little too busy and then I balance it out. But that I'm doing things that I'm both passionate about and impacting. I mean, to me, part of my success is the fact that I did impact beyond my own personal environment. I mean, that to me was important. But if for somebody else, it's on a personal level of changing where they are, that's fine for them. And there's no question that parenthood brings a different aspect of success, but I'm not yet really sure how I define it. Um, it kind of skips a generation. Our children are so much part of who we are. I think I see it more with my parents, that their grandchildren, they're so proud of their grandchildren. It's like their kids, you know, you knew them when they yeah, were. Yeah, you guys are okay. Yeah, no, it's like they knew us when we were, you know, putzes and teenagers, whatever. When you're the grandparents, you can see all the fun part. And there's no question that you look at children and you see where they get to and you go, what? That grew up inside your house? You must be doing something right. and But it's the combination. I, I could not be a stay-at-home mother. I'm not a stay-at-home mother now. I mean, my kids are older. I never was a stay-at-home mother. And I don't feel that my kids were unbalanced because of that. And at the end, it's about finding that point of balance for myself between how much of a mother I am, how much of a parent I am, how much of a spouse I am, how much of a professional I am. And that balance is totally personal. I think my my sort of takeaways from that are really that that success is something that's ultimately very individual. And that might sound obvious, but I like a lot of things we've talked about, it's not really how we live our lives. You know, we usually live our lives by some sort of outward definition of success or what it's supposed to be. And that ultimately it's very individual, whether that is, you know, dedicating everything to career or everything to home life or, you know, whatever it might be, um, that that's really the only metric that matters. And also, that whatever idea you might have starting out, that life is fluid and it's, you know, you got to keep reevaluating. And just because you don't get to whatever idea you set out with X years ago or months ago or whatever, doesn't mean you failed. It means that, well, life happened and you discovered new things along the way and you realize that actually, no, I should do this and not that or, you know, whatever it might be. So, so all very, all, I, I have, I have notes. <laughs> I have notes that I will all of this stuff, it's always easier said than done, but I think these are all important conversations to have either way. I think, Nurit, at the end, that that idea nowadays is also, if you put for yourself the ideal of what you see as success, then maybe that for you is that balance. And if there's one thing that you learn with age, or not, as we all know nowadays, is that everybody's different. And a lot of us don't, you know, we all we want everybody to be just like me, or I want to be just like that. And, and then that one, it's like, you know, I look around nowadays and I really hope in that sense, I don't think it's easier for you. I don't think it's easier for people in their 30s nowadays or for my kids who are, you know, just in the beginning of their 20s. Um, in that sense, not because of COVID-19. I think that the new kind of modern world where you run around and you can change your jobs, that's not easier. It's just different. And I really hope in that sense that finding that tipping balance is something that everybody can do for themselves. Yeah, the paradox of choice is what we have now, which is a whole nother episode <laughs> and podcast and a whole nother everything. I have a lot of thoughts about that, but but it's not for now. So for now, I'll just thank you so much, Mary Eisen, for, for sharing all that life experience with you and your lessons learned. Marita, it is my pleasure. Thank you so much. 
Thanks so much for listening. And if you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe and send us your thoughts, any questions that you want answered or women that you want to hear from. Write me on Twitter at Nari Ben or on Instagram at Life Deconstructed Pod. And hold on a sec. Here's a peek at next week's episode. Fairly fresh out of design school, Amanda Gunawan co-founded the successful architecture and design firm OWIU. The design duo based in LA has created incredible projects in the US and Asia. We'll talk about why her family had to abroad leave Indonesia when she was a kid, how she figured out what exactly she wanted to do with her creativity, and what we can all do in this crazy COVID reality to make our living spaces fit our new lives. Like in certain parts of Asia, it definitely is more chauvinistic. And it's sometimes to the point where I'd be in a conversation and I'd have all these great ideas. I know exactly what I need to say. But I know that I have to prepare another set for my partner in case I'm not allowed to speak. I'm Nuri Ben. We'll see you next week on Life Deconstructed.